This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. On this week's show, having just seen Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson story, we talk about a few of our pet sounds, musical biopics to make us smile. Okay, so music biopics. Now, this is a genre that when you suggested it, Stephen, I have to confess, I was like, off the top of my head, I couldn't think of a single one that I liked. And so you sort of had to twist my arm a little bit. You basically (laughs) shot at me all these titles, and I was like, oh, yeah, that one's not too bad. Oh, right, I forgot about that. And okay, okay, I'm going to have to wade into this and and see if I can find ones that really grab me. And, And I'm glad I did, because I really did find a lot of titles that I enjoyed as part of the sort of research for this. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's an ongoing genre that's been around since uh, the dawn of sound and the movie musical came along. You do find these sort of films structured around a composer or a songwriter, and they tell his story, usually horribly and accurately, you know, without a shred of, of truth. Uh, I, I think of Cary Grant playing uh, Cole Porter right. in Night and Day is one of the earliest and... Uh, most uh, wildly egregious examples. Yeah, and I've seen De Lovely too, which I'm going to talk about, which uh, which tries to set the the, the story straight, uh, so to speak. Uh, but it, uh, you know, they, I, I'll I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I had some issues with it. But I thought it was actually fairly entertaining. Yeah, th- these films are either wonderfully on point or completely miss the mark. It's <laughs> it's it's really never here or there. It's not in between. They they usually either get it right or. or or for whatever reason, they just go completely off the rails, and and uh, it's uh, they can be really disappointing. It's, it's and it's always a shame when they are because when they're good, they can be really fantastic and really wonderful cinema. Um, you know, even if it's in a small kind of subtle way. I remember like the one of the earliest ones I ever saw was about Scott Joplin. It was I think it was a made-for-TV movie. I don't think it was a cinematic one, but but that was probably the first time that I was seeing the life of somebody whose music I knew. My dad had an old copy of the entertainer and other ragtime hits or whatever but uh-huh. so and then i was seeing this film about this guy who tried to bring his music uh, into the 20th century as it were and and uh I, I was quite young at the time but i was quite taken by this uh by this movie and i you know it probably might have been the first biographical film i'd ever seen i was quite young and and uh you know to see history kind of play out like that was really fascinating i'd, I'd love to go back and see it again and see how it actually stands up to the real history but but uh you know from that point on i was always fascinated with these films and and how they approach their subject matter especially because i was on a parallel path with discovering music at the same time as discovering movies and uh you know kind of mixing up documentaries like uh the kids are all right with uh, with some of the musical biopics, something like Amadeus, for example. I saw that right. in the theater when it came out, and you know that was just such a mind blowing experience. So, you know, th- these films, uh, you know, especially if you're in tune with the music, either either you discover someone you didn't really know a lot about, or you know, you see something you've known your whole life from a different perspective. If it's something like like Love and Mercy, the the Brian Wilson music that we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, absolutely, and I I understand how how it, you know if. I love the idea that you can discover a musician through these films if they're if they really tell a good story but but I have to say part of my I guess my difficulty with the genre is that I really love um, I, I love musical documentaries. Like I recently saw Soul Boys of the Western World about Spandau Ballet. Now Spandau Ballet was never one of my favorite bands ever. <laughs> like, but watching all that footage from the '80s and the scene and the fashions and what they were doing in London at the time and uh, and the performance footage, you know, I actually kind of got into the music and I I really was emotionally engaged by by the story. So so what I find when I watch musical biopics or biopics in general, I think I sort of all always ask myself, would I be more into this if uh, it was a documentary? And if the answer is yes, then I'm immediately like, I immediately jump away from it. I just go like, ugh, you know, especially if they're using tropes. Like, I'm someone who likes genre <laughs> filmmaking, time. but if they're using tropes that are really, really hackneyed, it's it's hard to feel feel like you're seeing something fresh or true. Like, I mean, we'll talk about uh, Lady Sings the Blues a little, in a little <laughs> oh, bit, which we, which we revisited, and, uh, and boy, it was not good. Um, but, I mean, it had a 70s charm, I guess you could say. Uh, but uh, I think 
And then I rewatched La Vie en Rose, which tells a very similar story about another iconic musician in a similar way, but does it so well that it really blew me away. Um, but uh, anyway, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to sort of say yeah. for the record that, that it was a sort of struggle to get backed into this, although I thought it was really rewarding to do it. Uh, and, and I was glad that this... That this this movie came along, Love and Mercy, because I actually really liked I really liked Love and Mercy. Yeah, well, maybe we should talk about those tropes a little bit because, of course, we're going to keep running into them. Yes, yes. As as the uh, as as the podcast progresses, so you know they they seem these films. They, there's a certain template, and I always appreciate the films that try to break out of the template for these movies. Love and Mercy is one of them. Uh, you know, whereas Lady sings the blues which we'll talk about later completely adhered to it you know yeah, with, and totally. uh you know there were the things uh number one was uh you gotta come from poverty poverty totally poverty that's is number one deal. yeah yeah and then uh then what's if, another one? well if if it's the character's female there's going to be abuse right. uh, and then there's usually a domineering male character who is an obstacle between her and her realizing her dreams and uh, usually there's some form of substance abuse somewhere yes. along the way. Oh, yeah. Drugs, alcohol feature wildly large in these movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's there's a little bit of the behind the music kind of structure where there is a rise and fall uh, in some capacity, you know. But, but dreams are made and the music lives on, you know, even if it's incredibly tragic. And m- many of these stories are. I mean, let's yeah. face it. Incredibly tragic and then titles on the fade to black. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Became beloved the world wide over yeah. for her. Way That's with right. The song. That's right. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so at least the work survives, even if their lives were were you know terrible. Uh, so, so what we have here in Love and Mercy is a is a nice undercutting of some of that. Uh, Brian Wilson, you know, based on uh, the, the screenwriters, I guess, just based it on their own research. It's not based on a book specifically. Uh, but uh, it's you know Brian Wilson told in two parts of his life in the late '60s when the Beach Boys were were really peaking in terms of their creativity, and then in the mid '80s when Wilson was was in some emotional trouble and he was over-medicated and, and being taken care of by uh, a dicey uh, physician who who really really controlled his life and but but Wilson meets someone at a car dealership and it it sort of changes <laughs> starts to change things for him uh, and that and I should say the the, the various characters uh, the uh, the film was directed by Bill Pollard and uh, Wilson is played uh, by uh, John Cusack and um, and the young Wilson is played by Paul Dano. Paul, yeah, Paul Dano, who's not an actor who I've necessarily liked a lot in his previous roles, but damn, does he not like <laughs> totally do this? Like, I, I I completely bought his his characterization of Wilson in this. I do like him. He has that kind of chameleon like quality, uh, kind of a bit like. Uh like uh, Oscar Isaac, I guess, in a way that mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know he he can change from role to role. He's not uh, he doesn't necessarily impress his personality on the role he lets the role kind of define what he does and uh you know here uh he is he's pretty much no perfect as brian wilson i and i i found it interesting that they just focus on those two periods because um you know there's a terrible tv movie about the beach boys of course yeah um so you know some of this stuff has already been kind of laid out in in the traditional um you know prosaic form uh so you know that i think that gave them a little more license to kind of freewheel it a bit more and just you know focus on those two sort of uh polar opposites of his life at his creative peak uh-huh. and at, at his personal nadir where, where the, the, the 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 landy years where he was under the spell of this uh, svengali basically who was just uh, controlling his life i mean obviously you know he's making money off of ryan and kind of sucking him dry but yes. there's this uh, you know you kind of wonder what his motivation is there's um, sort of a codependent so, thing going yeah, on yeah exactly um paul giamatti plays the doctor and, and he's very much you know you feel like he really needs this role in his own life to to take care of this very powerful brilliant man who is sick he's you know he keeps saying claiming that he's very sick uh and elizabeth banks plays the the card the car salesperson who uh, and it's really the second half the second part of it is a, a love story between yeah. these, these two people who, who find each other and, and help each other a little bit yeah and it, it's something that it gets at something that a lot of films aren't really able to nail down which is the, the nature of genius mm-hmm. uh, we spend a lot of time in the studio with Brian as he's uh, getting ready to do pet sounds and then when everything falls apart while he's doing smile 
and he just kind of the spiral begins basically yeah. and yeah. some of that was my favorite parts oh, yeah. of the film like the just trying to get a sense of of the way that Wilson communicated with other musicians even if they were studio musicians people outside of his band and try to communicate what he was going for was really wonderful I and then of course the music is so familiar to all of us when they play the music and you sort of see how it was made uh, it, that yeah just just amazing like I actually got emotional just watching the creation of this beautiful sound yeah and it just it just this is i, I mean i i've read a lot of the same sources that the screenplay was pulled from so um and it felt like they'd done their research that they'd uh tried to stick close to what the true stories were that had been told both uh in their 60s era and the, into the 80s and you know i mean the 80s stuff is interesting for me because i was watching it kind of happen through you know tv appearances and magazine articles and all that i i felt like i watched it unplay or unfold you know because because landy was a public figure like he was praised early on for getting brian's life back on track i mean huh. he'd gained 300 pounds and all this kind of stuff he got him got him exercising got him physically fit and got him back into the studio to do the album love and mercy which is where the the movie takes its title from but at the same at the around the point that the record came out then you know the story started to surface about how he was really kind of <laughs> you know, preying on his mind and, uh-huh. and playing on his fears and paranoia and, and pulling strings and things like that. So it, it was interesting to see that played out. And uh, Giamatti is, is great as Landy. I don't feel like he's exactly the character in real life, but then neither is Cusack really uh, in this film. I mean, that's what I thought was interesting. Cusack doesn't really look like Brian Wilson. It doesn't really sound like Brian Wilson. He's just kind of playing a version of, of the character that's that's um that feels uh historically true but n- not necessarily stylistically yeah the mannerisms I, I try to sort of connect the dots between paul dano's performance and cusack's performance and you can kind of see it yeah even though physically they're very different yeah so that's and that's always a tricky thing with these these movies is, is that it's very hard to get through one that doesn't have a false note of some kind and sometimes yeah. it's just the easiest you can just seeing the wrong record label from the wrong period or something like that or you know stuff like that can can drive me nuts it's always it's always nice when a, a movie goes the extra mile to make sure that you know when someone puts on a record and they're clearly putting the needle on at the start of the record and then you're hearing a song from the middle of side two right uh it's just like that, that stuff drives me nuts <laughs> um you know and that that didn't really happen uh, at all in love and mercy and, and uh uh you know so if it if it pleases a stickler like me then i imagine uh, the effect on someone who maybe isn't as familiar with the life uh, really gets something out of it yeah and i think for me uh you know, to come back to the genre for a second, the thing that really I found moving, there were two questions I had when I came out of, a, of, of seeing one of these films. Did I learn something about the artist that I didn't know? And was I genuinely, genuinely moved by the story? And if I was, then, then I feel like it was worthwhile. Like I, I got something out of it and I, I can, whether or not it's historically accurate or not, my experience of a film the story has been, been worth totally worthwhile. Now, now I wanted to mention that uh, Love and Mercy was co-written by a guy named Oren Moverman, who also was responsible for the, the uh, script to I'm Not There from 2007, which was the, the Bob Dylan biopic. Now, I wanted to say that I really was impressed by the structure of this film. Talk about, like, so many of these movies are told in a very chronological way, in a really safe way, and and a, a typical sort of prestige drama sort of way, which which becomes pretty dull after a while. And, and this one is was definitely not. It's much more episodic. And, and, of course, they chose a number of different actors to play the Bob Dylan character <laughs> within the film, which I also thought was very clever, uh, especially when you get people like uh, Ben Wishaw and Christian Bale and Kate Blanchett yes. to play these roles. I mean, these but especially, I really love the Kate Blanchett uh, section. But at the same time, I remember thinking, like, okay, there there is a little bit of that kind of like hagiography, the iconic boomer musician thing going on, and we ha- we have a lot of that, I think, in our culture. And and I, I feel like that Love and Mercy avoided a lot of that by just being very human and getting to the core of, of what drove him creatively and as a person in, in a way that made me feel something. Whereas I'm not there. I was just like, do we really, like, are we supposed to assume that Dylan is too complex and brilliant a dude that we need <laughs> seven different actors to play him on screen? Like, that that presumption, I felt, was a little over the top and kind of turned me off the movie a little bit. Well, I I liked uh, I'm Not There. I, I, I feel that... Uh... I feel that Dylan is always playing some inside joke on people, <laughs> whether they know it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's and, fair. Uh, and I felt the film was kind of in that 
mischievous spirit by doing things like having Kate Blanchett play him and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I I didn't take it too seriously. And Todd Haynes is is a director who does stuff like that. He, yeah. he plays around with the form. I mean, like, like I said, with Love and Mercy, it it avoid you know, like it avoids the whole you know they don't show his childhood and all that kind right, of stuff. Yeah. I think I think there's some flashbacks sort of later in the film, but they you know it's. It's after the points have been made. It's not about, you know, the rags to riches kind of story. And, uh, you know, you can't really do that with Dylan either. So I like this uh, multifaceted approach to a guy, who, you know, who's had numerous personas over the years. I mean, sure. uh, you know, he was the, the earnest young folky and then he was the 60s hipster. And then he was like the, you know, the born again guy and the, the guy with the weird white face paint in the <laughs> 70s. Right. And, yeah, and, yeah, that's and, right. You know, the... the and then the kind of the earnest, earthy singer-songwriter for, for a bit. And then, so, uh, you know, the, I, for me, having a, this kind of multi-ring circus approach to his life um, worked for me. I, 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 you know, I thought, you know, is, is Haynes trying to, is he trying to impress Dylan with the movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> by making it kind of fractured and, and uh, you know, kind of like a Dylan song in a way. And uh, I don't, you know, I, I haven't even read anything about what he might have said or thought about the film himself, but uh, Dylan that is, but uh, you know, he's a guy that I'm always kind of wrestling with, because I, sure. you know, he's 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 definitely one of my favorite musicians I would never want to meet the guy <laughs> now, I've seen him in yeah. concert a few times it's, it's always kind of a law of diminishing returns like, I, I would be perfectly happy if he decided to stop touring, but um, you know, the first time I saw him was pretty great and then, it, you know, just kind of the next two times were a bit not as not as great. So, um, you know, he's a guy that uh, you know he's he's compelling. There's always going to be an air of mystery to him, and I thought the film kind of held up that end of the bargain. There was you know it drew back the curtain a little bit, but because it was so impressionistic, um, you were never really sure if you're getting anything close to the real picture or not. You know? Yeah, so, that's fair. That's um, totally fair. Um, yeah, and I and I as I say, the the thing about the structure, uh, it did it did do. Uh, for it, it, it sort of undercut those those um, cliches yeah. uh, from the genre, which exactly. we see over and over again, which I did appreciate. And I don't think you'd want a straightforward Dylan picture because I mean there have been enough books written about him. You can get that story if you want it. I, you know, I prefer something that has uh, has a little more, um, bit more of the kaleidoscope, a bit more of the crazy house yeah. mirror, mirror room, and, and uh, I thought it delivered there. So uh, here's another question of another structurally pretty avant-garde biopic, and that's 32 short films about Glenn Gould. I wondered how you felt about about that film and, and whether you have good memories of, of it. I, I did like that film a lot, <laughs> not just because there was a Simpsons episode inspired by it. <laughs> um, was it 16 short stories about Springfield? Or yeah, something, something like, that? like that, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Colmfier was great as Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould's a guy I was kind of fascinated by. I'd seen a lot of documentaries about him. There's a couple mm-hmm. of really good National Film Board films and I saw it, and I have it on VHS somewhere I taped it off the air it was a, Glenn Gould gives a guided tour of his favorite places in Toronto it's pretty fascinating oh awesome is that something that you could find on YouTube uh, maybe yeah. I, I, it was part of a series called Cities okay and uh, I actually got in touch with the original producer of the show and asked him if I could get copies of the thing and he never got back to me so uh, huh. <laughs> unfortunately because there was Peter Ustinoff's Leningrad and wow. St. Petersburg oh, and, awesome. and Jonathan Miller showing you around London and um, Anthony Burgess in Rome you know? oh, amazing. so yeah it was a great series and unfortunately the only one I saved was the uh, the Glenn Gould one but um, so I had an idea of his character he, he's kind of a bit puckish he's got a sense of humor and uh-huh. you know people just see him as a serious guy at the piano kind of humming along as he plays Bach or whatever but uh, but again you know he was certainly a complex guy he liked to do those radio documentaries and, and so on I think you know I think his death was a major loss because I think he probably he wasn't that old and he had a lot of more work left to do I think but um, so the film kind of captured that aspect of it I, I can't remember all the the stories and they didn't all necessarily have him directly in them but um, there's lots of great moments in that film that yeah. kind of sum and, up the guy and it certainly uh, fulfilled one of the criteria I look for which is uh, I learned a lot about the character about him that I didn't know and I, I wasn't that familiar with his work or his life but but I found fascinating his in most of these movies there's at least one thing you come away with one particular like uh, character trait and and his resistance to live performance, I thought, was really interesting. You just don't hear a lot of that in modern music. He actually made a record where it was just him talking, and I actually saw this um, in a record store not too long ago. I was going through the classical section, and there it was it was like interviews with Glenn Gould, and one of the and so it's just like an interview all chopped up into like six sections or whatever. And one of them was like why con- why concert performances a problem and all this so like he was really like it wasn't just he didn't want to perform he was pretty adamant about why it didn't work for him yeah yeah even made a record of 
talking about it. It just, <laughs> just kind of blows my mind that he would go that far to do that. Well, he probably got asked about it all the time. I mean, yeah. in personal oh, life sure. and his professional life. And, and so yeah, he, didn't he have sort a, of had he, to justify it. He didn't have a podcast so uh, <laughs> or a blog or yeah. you know, so yeah. put so, out a record. So there you go. The, the scene in that film that I really love is there's a scene where he goes to a truck stop and he's just sitting in the middle of this, you know, completely anonymous, the middle of this truck stop, listening to all the conversations around him. And it just, it's this kind of symphony of, of spoken word in sound happening. And uh, I just thought it was a great scene uh, because the words became kind of music in his ears. And uh, one of the reasons that appealed to me was because I used to, well, I still do, love going to Franz in Toronto. Oh, at, yeah, I know that uh, College place. and Young. It's, sure. It's not the greatest restaurant in the world, but it's this 24-hour diner. Pan- pancake house diner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently, you know, he was a night owl. He stayed up all night. So apparently that's where he would go huh. in the middle of the night and do exactly that. He would just sit at a table, sort of central, and the eavesdrop on the conversation, usually, you know, late at night, so usually drunk people coming home from hockey games or whatever. Yeah. Because uh, it's right, right near uh, Maple, Maple Leaf Gardens. Gardens yeah. And uh, and so it was just kind of neat to see it portrayed because I'd heard about this, but I you know I, I thought it might have been one of those apocryphal stories that somebody said, oh yeah I used to go to France and just hang out and listen to the conversations, and then it turned you know they didn't do it at France but there it was on the screen it was like oh okay there's that story, uh, I guess it must have happened if it's in yeah. the movie kind of thing, <laughs> but it's just kind of fun to see it illustrated and and have that kind of aspect of his personality revealed. <laughs> Well, maybe for this segment, we can talk a little bit about uh, when uh, a star, actor, performer, what have you, is uh, paired with a historic figure and whether or not uh, it, it's always the best choice <laughs> in yeah. that case. Yeah, and sometimes a star sings their own stuff. Which is helpful for the yeah. most part. You, I mean, would, you would imagine. Well, it, I guess it depends on how well they you know, they meld with the character, like whether their voice sounds right. Uh, sometimes performance can be better where they are overdubbing the the vocals. Yeah, well, Buddy Holly's story is the first one that comes to mind because Gary Busey looked nothing like Buddy Holly. Right. <laughs> you know, they can give him the haircut and a pair of black frame glasses, but it, it he probably wasn't the best choice physically. Mm-hmm. You know, because Buddy was kind of a scrawny, skinny dude, and uh, Gary's kind of a hulking, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, big headed dude. But but it worked. He Gary, Gary did his own vocals rather famously at the time. And the film is a success, and and it's a lot of fun. I don't know that it's the perfect Buddy Holly movie, but it captures the spirit, and it's it's a little bit of its time. It kind of looks like a film that came out from when it did. I mean, some some of these films can have a timeless quality, and some of them can be very much, uh, you know, a, a very much a, a late seventies movie about the fifties or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, that the Happy Days effect, or whatever right. you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought a good mix. Uh, was uh, Ray, the Ray Charles story. Uh-huh. Jamie Foxx uh, playing Ray Charles. The film itself is kind of the formula biopic. Like, it, it, it does, you know, it's the rags to riches story and there's some drugs and, of course, you know, he goes blind and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I thought Jamie Foxx gave a great performance and, as you mentioned, he did the vocals himself and, and later, uh, I think, re- repeated the feat on the on the Oscar ceremony, I believe. Uh, and I thought, overall, the, the film succeeds on his performance um you know the the script kind of takes you through all these paces that that are pretty well well established um and visually i don't think it's necessarily the most uh, stunning film in the world but uh but it's certainly made watchable by jamie fox and I, and i don't think that i mean i haven't watched the film in years but i i seem to recall it's not too badly dated that, that it's um you know although other films have kind of made fun of you know, walk hard. <laughs> kind of combines Ray with the the, the Johnny Cash movie. Walk yeah, walk the line. the line. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, he 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 certainly deserves all the accolades he got for that film. And of course, at that point, you know, up to that point, he's known largely as a comedic performer with some action movie stuff on the side, but not for something this serious. Unfortunately, I think I think his he's taken his serious acting. I kind of wish he'd do some more of those fun pictures. He, he there hasn't been uh, so much of that from him uh, since since Ray. I don't. I don't know if um, he's put himself at this higher level or what have you, but um, I don't. Th- I, I haven't enjoyed him on screen that much uh, since then. So it's true. The only thing I can think of that he's done some sort of comedic thing. He was horrible bosses. I think he had like a okay. supporting role. Oh, that's right, as the hired killer. Yeah, but you know, it's uh, it, it's. I don't. I didn't. I wouldn't hold that up as a paragon of comedy of recent years. No, you know? but he's good in the in that film. It's kind of like Eddie Murphy in Tower Heist. Like, you know, you get a little glimpse of the Eddie Murphy of old, and then sure. Then nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting what you say about about the the performer coming with their own kind of 
uh, persona and then singing in pl- while playing someone else. Like we watched uh, Lady Sings the Blues, the Sidney J. Fury movie from 1972, where they cast uh, Diana Ross as Billie Holiday, uh, and uh, you know, and we mentioned it. It totally wallows in all those cliches of the genre: the the poverty, the abuse of men, the drugs, the behind the music cheese. Uh, and then they go as far to fictionalize characters. Uh, but you know, I have to say that Diana Ross. Uh, although she doesn't really sound much like Billie Holiday, she does have a beautiful voice, and she really does a good job with the singing. I also was really impressed that she was able to create a character that ages over a long period, and that's something that biopics do, I think, too often, is instead the more successful ones tend to choose a a smaller time frame in which to tell the story, and the ones that usually don't work as well are the ones that are spread out over like a long period. And we meet this character uh, when she's in her teens, and she's basically raped by someone, and then she becomes a prostitute, and she goes through all these hard times, and eventually becoming a singer. And then you know, drugs and alcohol take hold, and things get rough, and she dies quite young in her forties. Uh, but uh, throughout that, Ross does I, I mean a pretty good job. Then the, the, the question really is though is she really channeling the spirit of the person she's playing or is she just kind of i mean the movie is such a 70s very much so (laughs) time castle yeah and really uh, as i noted at the time it really has that vaseline on the lens kind of look (laughs) that's uh, so prevalent in films of of the period uh i think the, the, the look of the great gatsby came to mind that kind of hazy kind of overly lit kind of feeling in it and there's a lot of that in in this film um it's it yeah in a way it kind of trivial trivializes Billy Holiday's life because it doesn't really get across what she accomplished and and uh, you know how she kind of changed the music um, and and you know brought jazz into a, a new era as it were with her with her very stylized performances um, it, it gets all the music stuff all the music business stuff is completely wrong and and I, and, and you know I guess they maybe they had to fictionalize stuff because they you know worried about the rights with certain people who are still alive sure. and so on like that um you know we've got uh richard Pryor plays a character known only as piano man right it's right it's like, <laughs> pretty serious lack of imagination there <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he can't even come up with a name um you know ostensibly he's uh inspired by lester young the saxophone player who is kind of like a big constant in her life mm-hmm. um you know, but uh, for whatever reason, they they went with Piano Man, and uh, and uh, you know, Billy Dee Williams is kind of an amalgam of, of different men in her life over the years that you know loved her and left her when they couldn't handle her or whatever. But um, it's uh, it's certainly her picture uh, in in a lot of ways. Diana Ross is you can't really take your eyes off her. She's pretty fascinating. She is, and she has a natural charisma. Um, so it's not so much a performance as it is kind of a. Diana Ross showcase role. Yes, or and her, her hair is, it's not oh, terribly yeah. period. I mean, there's no. so much that it's just sort of suggested. It's supposed to be the 30s or, you know, what have you. And and uh, and it just, it screams the 70s, including the backlot uh, locations. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's weird that it's kind of this weird holdover from the past. I, I, there's a, uh, if you watch a lot of movies, you see the same, and it's the Paramount lot, because it always seems to be Paramount movies. There's this one New York kind of T intersection uh, I saw it in this old movie, uh, Detective Story, with uh, with Kirk Douglas, uh, it, and it's the same one in <laughs> Lady Sings the Blues. It's kind of got a bunch of bunch of sort of brownstone stoops and some storefronts, and then there's like a a cross street, and and uh, you know it's been used in everything, uh, probably going back to the '40s, maybe even yeah. earlier. Um, and they use that a lot, you know, because she's ba- conveniently like the whorehouse where she worked is right across the street from the jazz club where she seems to spend a lot of time. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a chintziness about some of it too that 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 kind of hurts it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, Sidney J. Fury, Canadian, but not the greatest director in the world, made some great early films and then kind of slipped into hack work. And unfortunately, this kind of fits the bill there. Yeah, though though it's funny at the time it got all sorts of Oscar nominations including for best actress, I believe. Yeah, and I think at the time maybe a lot of people didn't know the whole Billie Holiday story. There have mm-hmm. been books that have come out since that are more detailed and more accurate and and so on. So, um you know, I guess at the time as far as a look at her life went, it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, standards have changed, and I certainly think that yeah. that as great as she is as singer Diana Ross, uh, you, you just every time I kept listening for those Kind of the fragile thing that yeah. uh, that Billie Holiday had, and I just didn't hear it. Yeah, there's a. It always sounds like Diana Ross. <laughs> yeah, there's, she does try to put some inflection into her voice uh-huh. that that maybe kind of raspy, 
you know, kind of codeine kind of uh, kind of vocal style, a little bit that you hear expect from you know Billy Holiday, especially in later years, but. Uh, it never doesn't sound like Diana yeah. Ross. Um, now, now I also revisited La Vie en Rose from 2007. Speaking of Oscar nominated and this time Oscar winning performances, Marion Cotillard as as Edith Piaf. Now, interestingly, it shares with uh, Lady Sings the Blues a scene where the sort of elderly chanteuse falls down in the middle of a stage performance. Yes, yeah, um, striking resemblance. Actually. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and of course the parallels in terms of the storyline, uh, incredible poverty she comes from she she spent some of her childhood in a bo- in a bordello i believe and uh you know and then has trouble with uh substances later alcohol and drugs um but uh but what lady sings the blues was ham-handed with La Vie en Rose just gets right. Like, it is so moving and so impressive. A lot of it has to do with the performance, but it's also the direction and the writing and just the sense of authenticity of time and place. And th- this is also a story that, that moves backwards and forwards in time, which I think is a great technique in terms of you see the elderly uh, Piaf, you know, uh, hobbled by her various illnesses, even though she she died also in her 40s. Yeah, and, and, so young. But, but Cotillard is so good, and the makeup and the whole look is so good that I thought she was in her 60s or 70s, you know, and she's so compelling. And yet, then you go back to her when she was, you know, 25 on the top of the world and playing, you know, in New York City, and it's incredible, incredible, beautiful woman. Uh, and and the, and how she went to being becoming kind of a playful diva, too. Like, it is a film with a lot of pleasure and uh, and really really moving wonderful performances i uh, yeah i can't recommend la vie rose enough it was so good to see it again yeah it, it does hit all the same marks as lady sings the blues but it's like you know 30 years later and it's just you know there's there's a subtlety to it um and and Cotillard buries herself in the character which is not something that diana ross necessarily does although it is fun to watch diana ross have a drug freak out in a padded cell it's, <laughs> yeah. uh you know with her hair all over the place and her wide buggy eyes and stuff yeah, so yeah. You know, there, there, there's a certain enjoyment to be found there but but uh Cotillard, i mean uh, and she wasn't that well known when this film came along so it was you know people didn't have any baggage to bring to right. that she yeah. wasn't somebody that they saw in Ed sullivan or no all the time or whatever and and uh you know, whereas people did know the Edith Piaf story for the most yeah. part, her affairs and her her love with the the the, the boxer from America, and, right, and, and, right, um, who died in the plane crash. Yeah. And I should say also, just to for the record, that Cotillard doesn't sing in this role. She they she sings in the live performances. They have other singers right. dubbing her, or they use actual uh, live recordings of Piaf. Uh, so so that isn't an issue here in this particular example. But just funny to compare the storylines. Uh, I did want to mention also the Doors from nineteen. 1991, uh, Oliver Stone in terms of an, an actor who sang in a role. At that point, Val Kilmer I think was probably best known for Top Gun uh, and he, he uh, you <laughs> Please, know, Top Secret <laughs> oh, well, Let's, let's not too. forget Top so, Secret I won't, I won't forget Top Secret <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, and here he is stepping into the role that, uh, you know The Doors, and I remember The Doors as a band because uh, I was just out of high school uh, and I remember The Doors as a band I loved in high school, but I also was kind of like done with them. And I have this theory about The Doors, and I'm sure fans out there listening would probably, uh, you know, be contrary about this. But I feel like The Doors are a band you kind of outgrow. They you, uh, totally are. You oh. know, you get really into them and they're the, the psychedelia and the, the philosophy, and it's all so deep and heavy, man. Uh, and then <laughs> and then you kind of go, well, it's just kind of, you know, it's it's there's something something adolescent about it, but also youthful and just part of a time and then you kind of go away from it uh yeah that's totally how it was for me <laughs> um oddly enough uh on the, the best show with tom sharpling i think i've mentioned this before but that he's had an ongoing obsession with like why people love the doors and then like completely do a 180 on them at some point something happens in their life where they just kind of like oh enough what was i thinking yeah uh, <laughs> you know and uh you know, he, there's one episode where he does a, like an in-depth dissection of the song "Touch Me," uh, <laughs> you know, which is like you know you expect this guy to come out with something dark and weird and forbidden. And he uh-huh. comes out with basically a Tom Jones number, right? But oh, um, right. <laughs> uh, but you know, I don't want to go too far into that. But I, yeah, by the time the Doors came out, I was pretty much done with this band. I I uh, I kind of started listening in junior high. I was probably like 12 or 13 at the time. And, you know, some guy had an older brother with a bunch of Doors records. And, you know, I kind of thought it sounded cool and something uh-huh. like that. But then, you know, once I started listening to the poetry and and just reading about him and 
how he kind of just kind of let his life evaporate in the later days. I just couldn't care less. And yeah. So. Well, it's a story again of like uh, peaks and valleys rise and, and precipitous fall as, as well as the drugs. Oh yeah. And, it's uh, all there. you know, it's all there, but I, I have to credit uh, Kilmer for in the inhabitation of, of Jim Morrison and, and singing a lot of those songs. Like he did a really amazing job. Uh, Kilmer is great. Uh, I remember seeing the doors in the theater with a friend of mine and, uh, he coined the term uh, "I got an ollie," meaning a headache, a film-induced headache, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just due to having watched enough Oliver Stone films, right. you know, this and Born on the Fourth of July, and so on. Just like his, his bombastic assault on the viewer, just. Uh, just drains you. <laughs> it is pretty exhausting at times. I, I totally get that. But I also appreciate that that he is really, I mean, he, he is nothing if not serious about his subject Oh, matter. for sure. And and I, I, I he really wanted to make, every time he makes a subject a film about, like, whether it's football or Vietnam, he wants to make the definitive last word on that on that subject. And this is the last word on the 60s summer of love, you know, psychedelic rock. And, uh, and you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I found myself, I, I laughed at some of the ways he was the, the heavy, portentous ways he tried to, you know, eat, get the blood out of the story. But I also <laughs> appreciated the spirit that he was, you know, trying to tell a story of an artist who, who really wanted to be on the edge of whatever what they were doing. And I think maybe for a short period, they were. Yeah, I, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you struggle to try to say something good, yeah, about, I, nice about you it. You know what? I, I think I enjoyed watching this film when it came out. I, I'm not going to deny that, but it just uh, it, it's not a film that's aged well for me. Um, you know, I, I do think parts of it are kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, but I do. You know, like all the way I feel about Oliver Stone is he's our generation's Otto Preminger. You know, because Otto Preminger made these really heavy-handed, you know, three-hour-long multi-star widescreen spectaculars about serious topics like the cardinal the ultimate film about catholicism and advised and consent the star-studded ripping the lid off washington drama right and, right and and all these things and and you know and skidoo which has you know jackie gleason on lsd so uh, <laughs> you know which is the, maybe that's where the crossover happens with right, Oliver Stone. but um you know so he's not a he's certainly never a boring filmmaker um but uh yeah i was Got to remember taking Advil before I go to see any of his films. In a world where podcasts are becoming one of the more prevalent forms of entertainment, why do a Patreon? Well, here at Lends Me Your Ears, we want the listener to be able to show their support for us as we provide you with great entertainment and fun facts and trivia about movies. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, you can go to Patreon.com and show your support. We do the show in a fabulous studio with great production values, quality audio, editing, music, sound, lights, camera. Well, we're getting there. But we'd like to have a YouTube channel. We'd like to do some live events and make Lens Me Your Ears a more enveloping kind of public experience. Those ones and zeros aren't cheap, and, and uh, you can help us go down to the math store and pick up some, some fresh and extremely luxurious ones to make this show the best that it can be. So consider donating through Patreon, and you'll get some great incentives. You won't believe what's, what's coming along. And do it because Zuzu, the podcast parakeet, says so. To learn more about the campaign, visit patreon.com slash lendsmeyourears, or if you're feeling naughty, patreon.com lendsmeyourears. So, Stephen, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, uh, some country music biopics that you watched in the last week. Yeah, I major oversight for me, I had never watched Coal Miner's Daughter or Sweet Dreams. Coal Miner's Daughter is the Loretta Lynn story. And uh, Sweet Dreams is the Patsy Cline story. Right. And uh, I believe they're the same producer. I think he just went to Nashville and snapped up every country music uh, biography and autobiography he could get his hands on. Um, and uh, they're from around the same time period. They intersect. Uh, Patsy Cline is in both films, played by Beverly D'Angelo in uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, played by uh, uh, Jessica Lange in uh, Sweet Dreams. Uh, and it's interesting because you know it's a similar uh you know, the rags to riches formula and everything like that. Um, but they're two very different films. I was actually surprised. I, I, I thought I would like street dreams more than I did. Um, I actually used to have the soundtrack for ages where they took Patsy Klein vocals, but put in new bed tracks. So it'd be a in stereo and B fit the scenes in the films because they show her performing and, uh, Jessica Lang 
is uh, performing, and at one point there's this wildly inappropriate sax solo. It does not <laughs> does not sound like a 1950s, 60s sax solo. It just t- totally has that kind of 1970s Saturday Night Live saxophone, as I like to call it. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, uh, it, it's just interesting how a few little shifts in tone can, can make something so different. Um, you know, both women had husbands that were trying to help run their careers but at the same time we're holding them back in some way um you know we're occasionally violent toward them um so again all these same things but but one is a very successful film that holds up really well today and the other is one that feels very much of its time and and um yeah sweet dreams is the one that uh, hasn't aged quite so well uh, i was never a big jessica lang fan for one thing um this is probably the performance by her that I like the most of the ones I've seen. I gotta um, say, King Kong, man, King Kong. I, was <laughs> I gotta revisit that one because I, <laughs> I haven't seen that one since the eighties. I have a copy of it, so I should. I've been mean to throw it on. Maybe it's do, pretty entertaining. Actually, do that. And I, the, it's from a seventies, you know, the 70s. Peter Jackson one. Um, right, it's got a great cast and it's got some great effects and mm-hmm. it's got the twin towers. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, compared to uh, Sissy Spacek and Coal Miner's Daughter. Um, Jessica Lange, it always feels like a performance and um, and that maybe she's just kind of upping it a little bit to to match Ed Harris's intensity because as, as her husband, Ed Harris is, uh, he's, you know, like a drunk, impulsive, cheating, miserable SOB. Right. And, uh, you know, and he... He just steals every scene that he's in. You just cannot take your eyes off the guy and, and so she has to kind of up her game and it doesn't feel like Patsy, really, like it, it's there was a there was a warmth and a charm to her, from what I gather, that uh, doesn't necessarily come through in in Lang's performance. Lang's very good. I mean, uh, you know, eventually, about an hour into the film, they finally give her an appropriate hairstyle. Uh, <laughs> so the, there's just weird little touches that that, that don't uh, don't quite fit. Whereas uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, directed by Michael Apted, um, you know, so he's a British guy, so he's coming at uh, this whole country music and this the the concept of the South. From, with an outsider's view, and I think it really helps the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tommy Lee Jones is the husband. Tommy Lee Jones plays the husband, and the interplay between him and Sissy is right on. Like, uh-huh. like uh, you can tell they really had an affinity for each other. There's a chemistry there, and Sissy Spacek really, you know, she feels like that girl from Butcher Holler who. You know, just uh, one day gets a guitar thrust into her hands and learns a few chords, and the next thing you know, she's writing, uh, you know, Honky Tonk Girl and, you know, uh, You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's such a natural progression. But the thing about The Coal Miner's Daughter, it, um, it's a really good film. Like, it, it just feels like such a natural story. Like, it doesn't, for the, for the first, you know, third of it, it doesn't even feel like a musical biopic. It just feels like a, a woman growing up in remote. Uh, rural poverty that is hard to imagine in this day and age, you know, in a house, no electricity and yeah. no running water and all that, but the family, you know, a big family, but a tight family. And so you get that, that sense. And then, um, you know, eventually the music starts to come into it. Um, and it doesn't feel like they're just trying to get to all the key points in her life. You know, we, you know, all the highlights, it's, it's a very naturally made film. Um, there's not a lot of flash in it. Um, you know, there's, there's there's quiet moments. It's kind of it's not quite an art film, but it's got this indie film feel, uh, even though it was made by Universal. And it's uh, you know, Apted, I guess uh, was allowed to have a pretty free reign because it just it, you know, the glitz and glamour really doesn't come into it until towards the very end. He's more interested in the characters and their their growth as a couple, and and uh, the music part of it is just part of a bigger story and I really appreciated that and speaking of casting real musicians I gather Levon Helm has a role in it yeah he plays her father and uh, you he's know, a drummer from the band for anyone yeah, who doesn't know that and originally from rural Arkansas I mean he knew these kind of people uh, in his own life and uh, you know he just captures it real well I guess maybe because Robbie Robertson had been doing some acting in films like Kearney I guess Levon had to one up him and of course this is a much better film than Kearney but um, yeah he's, he's great it's a shame he didn't do more of it I know he's in a few other films here and there but it, he really wasn't his calling, and he wasn't what he really wanted to do the most. He wanted to be behind that drum kit. So, you know, small blessing there. But he's wonderful here, and uh, you get a lot of people. You get Ernest Tubb playing himself. That's the other thing. Like, Coal Miner's Daughter is a better sense of the country music world than Sweet Dreams did. Uh, it, everything Patsy does seems to be kind of in isolation. Um, but in Coal Miner's Daughter, Beverly D'Angelo's uh, Patsy, she's friends with Loretta. They toured together. They have a real uh, warm camaraderie, which is really nice. You know, the, there's nothing like that in, in Sweet Dreams. Um, and, uh, you know, Minnie Pearl shows up. And uh, 
but it's you know it's it's part of the progression you know of her getting on the Opry and all this stuff and it just it, I felt like I'd had a better look into that world and that's 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 kind of the 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 trick of these kind of films is you want to see a world you've only heard about or only dreamed about or whatever and uh you know and do it in an authentic way and that's the balance that I thought that coal miner's daughter pulled off really well. So the question that I have is whether or not biopics, musical biopics where the producers haven't been able to secure the rights to the songs by the <laughs> artists are worth seeing. Now, there aren't a lot of examples of this, though. I know there recently was a Jimi Hendrix biopic starring Andre 3000 and Haley Atwell where they couldn't use the original music. Now, I've also read that uh, that uh, Paul Greengrass is making a, a another one about Hendrix and that this time he has made a deal with the Hendrix estate so that he can actually use the music which will be a huge plus whoever they cast in the <laughs> in the role and I thought to myself like I, I just don't know what the point if, if you can't use the music by the actual music by the artist then why would you bother making the movie yeah, it does seem like a major drawback. I haven't seen it either, but I like Andre 3000. I can see him in the role. Yeah, I can too. He has the kind of the right charisma. Um, but you know, and I th- I think you I think you could tell the story, you know, but of some some acts, but I mean because he was such a different person on stage than, you know, I I've, I've seen him interview. I mean, he was a thoughtful, expressive guy and he, you know, he knew the studio, he knew the history of music, you know, um uh, he was I think he was a a lot there's a lot more to Hendrix than people realize, but of course, because he was gone so soon, um, maybe people didn't get to see all the sides of him. So, you know, if you focus on certain aspects of his life, you might get away with it. But, but performance was just such a big part of who he was, and and you know what he did on the studio, and what he did on the stage are kind of two different things in a way. Um, it's it it seems like kind of a pointless endeavor considering all the effort you have to do to get even close to getting a camera operating on a, on a <laughs> yeah. film to, to not have such a key piece of the puzzle. You'd think um, it would be part of the sale, the selling of the thing too, right? To people who love the music. Yeah, right? that seems to be the first thing you would, like, can we get the rights to the music? Oh, yeah. well, let's go make a movie yeah. about puppies then. Or yeah, I mean, like, uh, though I have to say, if you're not going to have the rights to the music or you're going to have the music be kind of the background, there are different ways to do it that I think have been successful. For instance, I would say Sid and Nancy from 1986, Alex Cox's great love story uh, between Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen is really the music plays a pretty small role in it. It's more about the relationship between these two characters and the scene that it's in. And and it's heartbreaking and it's basically the story of two junkies who can't get out of their own way and it goes very badly for them. Uh, where but where the music is, is very much kind of a side show to the main drama of the film. And then there's Last Days, which I caught up with. I'd seen once before when it came out in 2005 and now I saw it recently again uh, last week. Gus Van Zant does a very expressionistic take on the Kurt Cobain story, the last few days that he was alive. And he casts, basically by not making it about the music at all, he casts Michael Pitt as this sort of long, you know, blonde-haired, sort of like <laughs> Pacific Northwest uh, plaid-wearing uh, rock star named Blake. And uh, and he lives in this sprawling house in the woods, and he has, you know, various people sort of hanging around with him, uh, and he interacts with evangel- evangelical god-fearers and sales, salespeople, and uh, it's not about the music at all. It's just about this alienated character in a world where he feels completely separate from. And, uh, you know, and then Kim Gordon wanders in, and Asia Argento, and Lucas Haas, and Ricky Jay, and there's amazingly long takes. It's very meditative, and, and it's a film that that uh, that it did the most amazing thing, which it made made Michael Pitt uh, appealing to me. He's not an actor <laughs> I like at all. I pretty much haven't liked him in almost everything I've seen him in. But in this, I found him to be quite compelling. And uh, and it, it, it's I, I don't think it pretends to be uh, a definitive uh, look at what Cobain's last few days were like, but it gives a suggestion of what may have may have been. And I think that's kind of an interesting way to approach it. Yeah, I think in the case of that film, it was within a t- enough of a time span the music was all kind of pretty much in our consciousness at that point so uh it wasn't necessarily the, the the most crucial thing to have it in there um and you know and he had kind of turned his back on music a little bit you know like like he was tired of the touring and the performing and you know having the demands that were being placed on him at that time and and of course you know making him a fictional version of himself kind of gives you an extra bit of distance too where it's again it's not the most necessary thing in the world to yeah. have those iconic songs as since he's not Kurt you know not technically Kurt 
Cobain, having those songs might actually be an impediment. That's right. Yeah, it can distract and, and maybe give a, fence, a sense of, of reality where this is a very dreamlike film. And I think that's what Van Sant is going for here. Um, you know, his film, like, like he made Elephant around the same time, and they are all concerned with youth and death and decay and that kind of thing. And, and it really, it really interesting, I think, uh, just standing on its own as this sort of uh, almost experimental film. Um, but I, by speaking of ex- a little bit experimental, and I, I, I feel like we should say a couple things about some movies that people may not have heard of, some some uh, a, a little rare gems out there in the in the, the musical biopic world. Uh, Control from 2007 uh, by the former rock photographer Anton Corbin and rock video maker. Uh, he did a, a biopic about um, Ian Curtis uh, from Joy Division and. And it was actually a kind of interesting, lovely, sort of blue-collar, working-class England, um, you know, a, a, a biopic, a romance also, uh, with uh, Sam Riley, a young, pretty much unknown actor, and Samantha Morton. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know much about the, the truth of the story. I really enjoyed the story of these characters, though I remember coming away from the film thinking to myself, I don't know that I understand why he's so beloved as a musician. That was one thing I felt that was kind of left out in the uh, in the film, and I, I don't know if, how you felt about it. That, that's often a big problem with these films that they don't necessarily uh, get across the impact that the music necessarily had. Like obviously, that's a problem with Lady Sings the Blues. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really give you that sense of how big she really was, or maybe even wasn't in some cases. That maybe the legend has been blown out of proportion um, to her popularity in her heyday, kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> Control, uh, for me, I mean, I grew up uh, through that period. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I mean, I was able to hear Joy Division right before Curtis died. You uh-huh. know, and, uh, you know, I remember I went to England in 1980, and I thought, oh, it would be cool to, like, to see them play or something like that. And, of course, he killed himself shortly uh, a couple of months before I actually went. Um, so that had already happened, mm-hmm. you know, months before I actually the tr- made the trip. So was, those hopes were kind of dashed. But New Order hadn't happened yet at that point. So, uh, you know, and I remember reading uh, the five-star review of Closer in right. Rolling Stone and all this kind of stuff. Um, so for me, like, I, you know, the, the, everything was already set in stone of this music being classic. Uh-huh. <laughs> even, sure. even though it was, like, still brand new. That I'd, the, You know, it's goth hadn't happened yet, uh, you know dressing in black and staying in your room all day and all that kind of stuff was uh, was was not a, like a was not a, a trend or a cliche even at that point. So this music, this kind of dark, brooding, foreboding stuff. I mean, there were precedents for it, but but uh, Joy Division really threw it into into this kind of bright contrast. And and uh, I thought the film, you know, captured what they were doing that was so different from the punk rock that came just you know, months practically before they arrived on the scene. I mean, everything happened so quickly between 1975, 76 and 1980, you know, like, like everything just kind of came and went yes. in the space of, a f- and now you think about music, uh, and how it doesn't seem to change at all over the ca- course of a decade. Like, yeah. like really what has happened amazingly to change music over the last 10 years? Well, kind of nothing, really. <laughs> you know, this stuff has just yeah. gotten just divided up into smaller little camps and, mm-hmm. and we carry on. Um, so it's you know but but you can kind of mark joy division as uh, you know there's so many it it kind of launched a movement you got uh between sort of the electronic stuff that came after and some of the darker brooding stuff like the Bauhaus and so on that came after and and uh you know the the the, the uh kind of anti singer yes <laughs> yes sure yeah curtis had this command but he was also kind of a spaz on yeah. stage you know yeah. he was at this herky so it's it, it, there's a lot of um like I said, there's a lot of contrast there. And uh, I felt it captured this band that was kind of conflicted, like within the band, the personalities of the, the guys who wanted to be rock stars and Ian oh. was trying to make a statement and, and maybe even change music, which yeah. which I think they did in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe it's just hard, you know, enough time has passed that it's maybe hard to to, to see what an impact they made at the time. Well, I would suggest if you wanted to do a double feature, a good one to do it with would be 24-Hour Party People. 
yeah. uh, Michael Winterbottom's 2002 film with Steve Coogan. He stars as Tony Wilson, who was the factory records impresario and TV personality and basically a Manchester character dude. He, he op- owned the local spot called La Hacienda and he helped bring Joy Division and New Order and Happy Mondays to the world. Uh, and it's a, it's a really funny, it couldn't be more different than Control. It's a very lively, almost comedic look at the scene where this guy's in the center of the story, Tony Wilson, but he, he kind of breaks the fourth wall all the time and talks to the audience and talks to the viewer and basically says, I'm just showing you all this stuff. I'm not the main, the person in the story. And he keeps interrupting himself. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a typical Coogan, Coogan role where he plays someone who's just barely likable. <laughs> uh, but it's a great character. And, and through the way they use actual footage, you know, they keep cutting to the audience for scenes at gigs wherein we see live footage, actual stock footage of the bands playing. So you feel like you're at the gig, which is a really cool trick. And it and it's an entirely different approach and much more chaotic approach. But uh, I think it, it's uh, it makes for an interesting kind of counter perspective to control it. And it, and it sh- certainly shows you a, a different side of Joy Division where you get to know the band a little better and you get to see them see them do their thing. Yeah, well, yeah, control is, is interesting that Joy Division... Uh, Ian Curtis, at least, and, and to some degree, the Factory Records machine were kind of obsessed with Europe and that European style and Germany and and uh, and Berlin and that kind of stuff. I mean, Joy Division, obviously, their name <laughs> comes out of uh, you know the, the 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 section of the death camps where the prostitutes were. Yes. So so um, you know so Control kind of fits a more European aesthetic, whereas Twenty uh, Four Hour Party People has the broader spectrum of Manchester or Madchester. Yes. Um, because it's a weird town. It's it's sort of industrial, but also has some of that stately English kind of glory to it. It's not completely uh, it's not completely industrial like Birmingham. All these towns are like Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool. It's interesting. They're all really close together. Like, you know, it's like a half an hour from one to the other, uh-huh. and yet they have completely different accents, completely <laughs> different music scenes. Uh, you know, and their own their own flavor and uh, their own kind of musical communities, and it's it's kind of neat to see it encapsulated in that film. And uh, yeah, Coogan playing Wilson is this guy who kind of created a scene single-handedly. It seems like you know, this, it, the Factory was kind of like 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 sub pop with Nirvana. It was like a label that kind of created its own sound and its own genre. And uh, and uh, you know, with a lot of uh, late nights and drugs. And <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think we're kind of running out of time. I, 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 we were going to talk about some some obscure gems. There's so many. I mean, I've, I've got look at your list here, and there's so many things we didn't touch on. It's true. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the next right below it, you've got Backbeat, which was kind of my pick for an obscure gem. Looking at the early days of the Beatles in uh, in Hamburg, and it's it's funny. I, I'm always wondering, like, when's the next cinematic representation of the Beatles going to be? You've got Nowhere Boy down there. The yeah, John which I, I haven't seen it, but uh, but I gather it's pretty good. And then, yeah, th- and there's another film about John Lennon going on vacation with Brian Epstein to Spain, and and uh, you know there've been a few fictionalized portrayals of them over the years, but. But uh, I guess as long as Paul and Ringo are alive, still alive, people don't want to take a big swing at the Fat Power. And and maybe it's just as well. I I feel like we've lived their lives so often through documentaries and books, and I'm perfectly happy with never seeing another Beatles movie. But I like Backbeat because it just focused on the early days in Germany and that particular period where they kind of hardened up and you know by playing all those shows and taking speed and and uh, letting their personalities kind of come into fuller focus and and you know of course losing Stu Sutcliffe at an early age uh kind of made them the band that would soon become the uh, the biggest rock and roll band in the world uh yeah. and and I I kind of prefer that to uh to trying to take on the whole thing. I know at some point somebody's going to make a movie called The Beatles or yes. something like that and and take us from Liverpool to that uh, Ed Sullivan show and the, beyond, yeah, and yeah. the Apple office rooftop. I don't particularly want to see it, but uh, it's bound to happen. I, I, I like Backbeat too, and, and I thought it's the Stephen Dorff at his best, which is you know he he was for a second there. It looked like he might be a movie star, and I don't know that it actually quite happened. But <laughs> no. but uh, but it's an interesting perspective because it's sort of like you know uh, Stu Sutcliffe like let's tell the story of this like obscure beetle <laughs> I mean it's kind of like like the biography of Pete Best like yeah. it's a strange thing it feels a little bit like they're bearing the lead you know but at the same time it actually makes for a fairly compelling feature story about about a band that everyone knows about and sort of the secret history of yeah and Stu's the guy you know he was the one who was you know he, he was the the most art school. Of the, I mean, that Paul and John, you know, went to art school too. But, um, but 
Stu was the guy who really took that aesthetic to heart. And you always wonder, like, what might have happened if he hadn't died and all this kind of stuff. You know, would they have turned into Velvet Underground? Who knows? Right. But, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, that, that kind of crossroads microscopic look is uh, – I think I prefer that to the, the big full picture kind of biopic, that, that taking a look at a specific moment where everything changed um, – to me i think it has more opportunities maybe because there's more of them and uh you you can it gives you more options in terms of how you examine it and whether or not you do it in a straightforward or a non-linear way and uh you know backbeat was uh w- it was fun it was funny it was tragic it, it, they were able to get a lot into that uh film and i also like the what they did with the music where they basically got a bunch of uh guys from like sonic youth and dinosaur and stuff to kind of be the beatles right <laughs> and, because they would play it more crashy and bashy than a bunch of guys trying to perfectly uh, imitate that sound and mm-hmm. instead they got a much rawer um, looser feel because that's what they were you know when they're playing at the Hamburg Star Club and hop- hopped up on goofballs and just cranking it out uh, for you know until dawn or whatever and uh, uh, you know that, that that gave it another kind of energy that uh, might be harder to sustain over a longer period So we need to wrap up here, and I realize that there is a lot of ones we haven't <laughs> talked about. Later this summer, uh, Straight Out of Compton comes out, which I've heard some pretty good things about. The trailer looks the trailer pretty good. looks fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, aside from one member complaining that he's not in there enough. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And of course, uh, you know, you've got Notorious, the Biggie Small story in there, right. and we've got uh, the Fifty Cent movie was actually way better than I expected it. Would yeah, be. me too. Get I rich thought, or die trying. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then there's the uh, Eminem movie that we never talked about, Eight Mile, which is kind of a kind of a fictionalizing of his his tale i guess but uh yeah you and the classical music we didn't really touch on yeah we didn't talk about that um i i should say that uh that uh earlier in the in the show i talked about uh we we talked about the cole porter uh film the first one which avoided his gayness entirely (laughs) Uh, i watched d lovely from 2004 directed by erwin winkler and the film is is not super exciting but it does do justice to his his songs there's uh, many of them are featured in there amazing like i loved i loved his wit cole Porter's wit as a writer was amazing, and I, 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 and it does talk a little bit about the arrangement he had. It's a love story about the arrangement he had. Kevin Klein plays the lead, uh, and he, with Ashley Judd, uh, and and he was married to this woman, but they both acknowledge his his queerness and his his need to go out and have these relationships with these men, and uh, and it's kind of about how they they the dynamic they were able to sustain that and their marriage and their love despite this complicated relationship and so so in that regard uh, you know as a lover of the music and i think i think it does it does justice to the character that i guess is a long time coming um but uh and, yeah, yeah you mentioned you mentioned classical and uh let's <laughs> let's before before i get carried away again let's uh let's finish <laughs> off on that uh, one of my favorite musical biopics uh, for forever uh, is impromptu and it's a little a little gem not a lot of people have seen and it's about Chopin and about Liszt and about the sort of debauched uh, artists of Paris of the era and Chopin is played by Hugh Grant in a, in a you know not a great accent but he's kind of this fragile <laughs> tubercular character and he uh, meets up with Georges Sand uh, who was a, a very prolific writer uh, played by Judy Davis a, a star at the time mostly largely because she wore men's clothing and that was that was just scandalous mm. George uh, Sand not Judy Davis yes that's right <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful story it's very funny uh uh, and it, it really, um, it really, really works. I every time I watch it, I'm just really impressed with how funny and how moving it is. Just uh, and and again, it, it fills those 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 criteria for me. It tells me it, it makes me react with the music in a way and and interact with it. And I learn something about the characters. And I also felt a lot for them. Yeah, and it was a nice flip side to another film that had come out, uh, I believe, a few, just a few years before. And that's Amadeus, of course, the story of Mozart, uh, based on a play. So it's not necessarily 100% accurate. Uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of scholars had some issues with with a lot of it, but you know, it gave you an idea of the impact this guy had and then how quickly he was forgotten you know, once he, you know, kind of fell on his uppers and you know wound up in a pauper's grave but but you know impromptu gives us a look into the into the personal lives of these very uh you know these very gifted and and praised people who you know certainly had their troubles i mean you just you just when you think of great composers you just think of them being like enshrined in 
in greatness forever. But you know, they're real people with real lives. Um, Amadeus gets that, but it also shrouds it in this huge operatic kind of life. Whereas Impromptu, I thought I like the intimacy of it and the sure. and the humor of it. Yeah, they they you know they they take a, a few liberties probably with history, but but uh, it's it's so funny. It is so funny. It's the kind of movie the more you watch, the funnier it gets. Uh, Mandy Patinkin and uh, Bernadette Peters. I mean, really, these are great <laughs> great performers. Um, and finally, I really just want to quickly touch upon something which which uh, again it introduced me to music that I don't think I've ever particularly been interested in, but made it interesting. For me, and that's Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. Um, it's about Gilbert and Sullivan and how they worked together and composed and created the Mikado. Uh, so, you know, Victorian uh, musical theater. Uh, you know, and again, a subject matter that I never really had a lot of interest in, but boy, did I love this film. It just is so full of, it's a sprawling ensemble cast. It's a great at capturing what life was like at the time for these people and, uh, and the pressures on them, the pressures on the actors and the composers and everybody. Uh, and it's just, it's a real joy to see. Yeah. And because it's Mike Lee, it does have that feeling of authenticity and accuracy, but there's a lot of humor in it. Jim Broadbent's one of my favorite uh, character actors, and he's great as Gilbert. And I mean, most people can't tell which one's Gilbert, which one's Sullivan. Like, who wrote the music, who wrote the lyrics, right? And the librettos. But um, you know, is is you know, you, you think you don't realize these people had, you know, their their desires and their wants. Uh, I, I think it's is it Gilbert who's the one who's always or. Or no, is it Sullivan who's always off in the the whorehouse? I can't remember. It's, it's all, I haven't <laughs> yes. seen it since it came out. It's, it was in ninety nine. Yeah, but it's Sullivan, yeah, Sullivan, yeah. 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 So uh, you know they they definitely have their peccadillos, and it, they seem more human as a result. Yeah, and Gilbert has problems in his marriage, and she, his wife, wants to have children, and he is too distracted by his work, and and he's very crusty and and curmudgeonly. <laughs> like he's the most curmudgeonly guy that you can imagine. Uh, and Jim Broadbent is just terrific. Um, yeah. So I think I hopefully yeah we we pretty much we raced to the end there but I think we got most of it we're gonna have to come back and do a fictional musical musical yeah, musical we've, biography we've got another list a whole other list there yeah I mean so this is Spinal Tap almost famous a mighty wind the Blues Brothers I mean that's that that is encompasses an entire other <laughs> genre that that uh, we didn't even touch upon so so food for thought uh, for future. Uh, for for future podcasts. Yeah, we need a great musical comedy to come along. So <laughs> I don't see any in the wings, but you never know. You never know. Well, thanks for joining us for our cinematic trip down Tin Pan Alley. Don't forget to download us and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And uh, if you feel good about the show, rate and review us while you're on there. Also, look for our page on Facebook and contact us on Twitter at at LensMeYourEars. And if you're feeling generous, you can always look for our Patreon at patreon.com slash LendsMeYourEars. LendsMeYourEars is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. LendsMeYourEars is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.